You're listening to a North Valley Community Church podcast. For more information and resources, visit us online at northvalleychurch.org. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the, the gift of worship to be able to connect with you through singing. We pray, God, in our time remaining here today that you would encourage, exhort, help us to realign our, our lifestyles around you and to grow and glorify you more. In Jesus' name, everybody said... Amen. Hey guys, great being with you this morning. For those of you that are new, my name's Ryan. Um, I want to give you a little update before we get started in today's message. Uh, We're helping start a brand new church over in the Desert Ridge area. It's starting off this morning. So I want to thank you for your generosity to even make that possible. Um, So can we just celebrate that Mission Grove starting right now? Jesus proclaimed is essential for church planting, and Jesus is being proclaimed in the Desert Ridge area. I just got a text message from some of our people. We probably got, a, 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 I don't know, 25 folks, maybe 30 folks over there right now, and uh, the kids' ministry let me know about that for sure, and, and, uh, and so, but we're going to help support them, you know, and so you're, you're giving his fuel that, but one of the guys just sent, Jay Ratscliffe just said, hey man, folks are excited. Um, it's in an awesome time over there right now. And so um, we're excited for them. We're going to pray for them in just a moment. Um, most churches that start out in the Desert Ridge area end up falling and failing. And so we're praying for this church to, to work. Um, Pastor John's a great guy, part of our network. And uh, we help contribute generously to help start and strengthen churches every year. When you give to the general fund, we set some portion of proceeds back and give it towards starting and strengthening churches. So this is one of those. So we'll pray for that. The second announcement I want to share with you guys is our church is growing. Um, Our North Valley kids and students facilities are over capacity. I shared that with you last week. And um, so exciting news is, is um, one of our uh, church members just said, hey, we really believe and want to help with that, alleviate the pressures in that building. We understand the long-term plan is to renovate the, the front building. What that cost is roughly $100,000 to $150,000. And so what we decided to do is let's create some outdoor space for now. We have high school ministry re- meeting out there right now, junior high, um, behind the kids' building. And so we just need some temporary space during the best time of the year. Uh, it's interesting enough, on the first Sunday I say we're going to do this, there's like a downpour, you know. Um, God, admit we're just being tested, you know, are we going to trust God in this? But a donor stepped forward in our church and said, hey, for every $1 um, that somebody gives, then the donor will give $2. And so, um, and so really is, and that, that'll go up to $5,000. So if you guys as a church contribute and collectively there's $5,000, then $10,000 will be give to, given by this donor to help fuel that project. Uh, the cost to uh, upgrade the Ramada and the kids uh, for junior high and high school is roughly $15,000. And so here's what I want to say just for a moment. Those of you that maybe don't give, you're in the nothing category. You just haven't really given for whatever reason. Maybe that wasn't part of your lifestyle of giving back to, towards God's work. I want to encourage you, maybe this would be a first step for you that you move from giving nothing to giving something. Some of you are already giving something. Maybe for you, you, want, you say, I want to give something. I want to give significantly. And so, and for some of you that are giving significantly, maybe you say, I want to give sacrificially where it hurts. 
You know, even in sending people today, the church hurts just a little bit when we send people to another church to help them start the church because our volunteers are strained. But guess what? If we're not giving and it doesn't hurt, I'm wondering if we need some room to grow. You know, and so what I want to encourage you to do is give you a little bit of uh, clarity on some of the funds I, I mentioned last time. The general fund's a great place, so I want to encourage you, those of you that aren't giving, give there. If you want to go ahead and give to the Campus Development Fund, a one-time gift, go ahead and do that. That'd, that'd be awesome. We'll open up these spaces for the junior high and high school kids. The Campus Development Fund is online. It's also on the envelope. Somebody came up to me after service and said, hey, I'd like to contribute towards that. I didn't see it online. It is online. You just have to scroll through there. And then the good news is it's being matched. So every dollar you give, $2 um, are given towards that project as well. So um, the Campus Development Fund is also on the envelope. And we're going to do this until we just get this done. And my hope is we'll just finish this today. So we can get the kids' stuff going. We've got all our trades people lined up, and we're just trying to start these projects right away. So um, I want to encourage you to do that. And uh, let's, let's, uh, if you have any questions, I'd love to answer them. I'll be at the Connection Corner right after service, and we'll go from there. Um, let me pause for a moment. I want to encourage you, those of you that are already giving to the general fund, please let me explain something. Please do not shift your giving and pull from the general fund pull from this pocket, and then put it over in the campus development pocket. Because that doesn't help our church. Um, the general fund sustains and fuels all the ministry that we do, and even more, like helping support that church plant. Additionally, we have a fund like, like the Hope Offering that helps offset some of that. But I want to encourage you, if you're already giving to the general fund, and your heart is tugging towards helping with the kids project, North Valley's kids and student ministries, I'm challenging you to give above and beyond your regular giving so, so that we can continue to fuel the ministry. This, this uh, is a growth problem that we have with our junior high and our high school students, and so it wasn't a part of our operational budget. So let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus, the name above all names. Lord, your love is great for your church, and we're thankful for North Valley. And this morning, I pray that all that are here today Lord, would be refreshed, renewed, challenged, encouraged, lifted up, Lord. And Lord, might you continue to grow your church, not just here at North Valley, but Lord, at Mission Grove and all the churches around the state and the country and the world. We pray for your name and fame, the name of Jesus, to go forth from here. And may we be the gospel carriers to share and show the love of Jesus Christ to the, the influence that you placed us into. In Jesus' name, everybody said... Amen. This morning, I've kind of got a long introduction to be able to help us ramp up. We're in First uh, Peter, and uh, Peter is writing to a group of believers uh, scattered throughout the Roman Empire in the first century. Many of these believers are discouraged. They've faced discrimination. They've faced slander and gossip. They're outsiders trying to live in a non-Christian world. Um, church has grown to several hundred thousands from just a, maybe 50 to 100, and the church has just radically grown, and now they're becoming a threat within the Roman Empire. And the temptation for the believer would be is, I don't fit in here in the Roman culture, therefore I'm going to retreat and run away. I like to use the phrase, going off the grid and under the radar. You know, I mean, uh, how many of you guys remember Y2K? Y2K, oh man. 
Okay, the Christian community acted very funny on that one. You remember that? Uh, many Christians were concerned or afraid that it was the end of the world, and they stockpiled food, they stockpiled uh, uh, water, and they headed to the hills. And at least in Arkansas, they did. Uh, but Arizona is not left out. I've met some f interesting people in Arizona. Um, the Christians responded because they were, they were thinking the political system was all uh, rotten, and so they felt like it was the end of the world, the end of times. I literally had a Christian friend that built a bunker underground in the hills of the Ozarks Mountains and had enough room and supplies for months. I mean, I think they spent probably $500,000 on this underground house. And there was doors that were this thick with concrete and steel. And I was like, I walked into it, I'm like, you think it's a little over the top? But no, there's this kind of fear factor within Christians from time to time that the culture is going bad, the world is going bad, therefore I'm gonna retreat and you have what I call the modern-day monks. The truth is, is that the, uh, the American culture that we live in is increasingly secular. Therefore, there's continual adversity, hardship, trials, struggles, opposition for Christians living in American culture. And I think, therefore, we can enter into the text and see Peter's audience is much like our very own, where we're trying to live our faith. And what I'm saying to you is it is, this serves as a prophetic voice to you is this, is that your next few decades could look radically different and the increased opposition for being Christian in this country will have a dramatic impact. And we must learn now, how are we gonna live and navigate through culture? Peter was writing with the same kind of angst to challenge believers. Nero is in power. He has not uh, implemented systematic persecution. There's spontaneous, sporadic persecution going on. He's writing in about the period of the 60 uh, AD, and the apostle Paul is also on the scene. He's being imprisoned for his faith, 64 AD, Nero is said by many historians to set fire to the city of Rome. Big portion of it burns down. He probably did it because he had a fascination with building projects. And then he blames it on, guess who? The Christians. Blames it on the Christians. And then therefore, out of 64 AD, you still have the apostle Peter. You still have the apostle Paul writing, encouraging believers. They're continually facing opposition and continually facing trouble in their life, continually facing a pagan world, an anti-Christian community with an increased levels of intensity. And in 67, Peter will be crucified upside down under the persecution of Nero. The apostle Paul will be headed in 67 AD. And we're reading and we're learning today, this strong exhortation for us is that in many ways, this is a modern, modern day Rome. Uh, we're going to face this kind of trial and hardship as Christians. Here's what George Barna says in his research. He says, we live in an increasingly secular American culture in this new age. Religion is in retreat from the public square and traditional institutions like the church are no longer functioning with cultural authority they once held in generations past. Today, half of America is unchurched. There's this exodus 
of people living Christian lives and living out their faith in the public square. They're afraid to talk about Jesus. They're afraid if they talk about Jesus at work, they could get fired. They're afraid to pray at school. If they do, they could get ostracized. They're afraid. There's a fear factor going on right now. American culture is overwhelmingly secular, and there is today nearly half of Americans are unchurched. And I think it's even worse than that because there's an increasingly population that will say that they're going to church, but they're really online. They're the modern-day monks. Many Christians are afraid to live out their faith. We can't be. In an increasingly secular culture, we're going to face opposition. This is not a postmodern world we live in. We live in a post-Christian world in America. Post-Christian means this is the loss of Christian worldview. The value system is the primary influence in our culture. We do not live, and when we say, God bless America, that's a thing almost of the past. And we definitely don't mean Jesus Christ. I would encourage you, when you're talking about your faith, clarify God in God we trust. Which God? We believe in the God named Jesus Christ. Most people ask, if you ask them today about their faith or something, they'll say they're spiritual but not religious. And they don't have any association with church. But what I'm saying is North America is changing. Here's what uh, Philip Jenkins said about the next Christendom, the wave of Christianity, the coming global Christianity. He says, we're living through one of the greatest transformations in history of religion worldwide. Over the last century, Christianity has enjoyed explosive growth in the global South, in Africa, Asia, and Latin America. Within a few decades, Christianity will be overwhelmingly a non-European, non-white religion. What I'm saying is you can enter into the shoes of the believers that the Apostle Peter is riding towards and as a, here my warning is that there will be increased opposition. You'll be increasingly a minority and I'm gonna tell you, God's gonna use it for good. It's okay not to fit in. 87% of our valley is without a church home. That means the majority of the people are not like you. 87%, while half of America is unchurched, we live in a Phoenix Valley, one of the most unchurched cities in America. So you're not supposed to fit in. I'm glad that we live here. I'm glad that the, God has planted me here in a city where there's an increasingly distance from people so that we can do something to share and show the love of Jesus Christ. But how you view culture as a Christian determines everything for missions. If your view is for culture, oh, that's corrupt, it's evil, uh, therefore I run away and I hide. I want to go off the grid, under the radar, leave me alone, you're bad, I'm good, I'm over here. Then how, are, how is the world going to be one to Christ? How is missions going to work? So I'm going to give you kind of two views on culture entering into culture, how Christians are to respond towards culture, and I'm going to bring a balancing in, uh, influence into it. So let's look. First at Romans 12, 2. I have to read this to you because it's a very true. The Apostle Paul's writing. He's writing to the church in Rome. They're, they're going to go through persecution, and he says, hey, do not be conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by the testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So on one side, we're not to conform to the world. 
We're not to be like the world. We're not to have the same world systems, the value systems. We're different people. We're supposed to stand out. Jesus said it like this in John chapter 15. He says, if you were of the world, he's speaking to his disciples, the world would love you as its own. He's saying, if you're gonna live by the worldly value systems and everybody's just gonna love you, you're gonna be popular. He says, but because you're not of the world, that means of the worldly non-Christian value system. He says this, but I chose you out of the world and therefore the world hates you. What I wanna tell you is that if, you're, if nobody hates you, maybe you're not living your faith strong enough. Maybe you're not standing out or stepping up. There will be opposition in the future if you're not facing it now for just being a Christian. So how do you respond as a Christian towards culture? I'll give you three views. You can reject it and run and hide which many of the Christians, I think, in, in Peter's day would do that. Um, the Jewish community did that. The Essenes, they were kind of, they, they'd run away from the culture, calling it corrupt. As a Christian, you can reject it and run and hide from the world. You can also receive it blindly and become very worldly. Jesus just said, you're not of the world. Uh, don't live like the world. Or you could redeem it by joining God's rescue mission in the world. Let me give you a couple of examples. Think about technology as a Christian. You know, some Christians, they reject technology. They say the advancements of technology, it's bad on the internet. It's terrible. You know, we don't use technology at our household. You know, um, the phone, you know, this phone right here, you know, I found out that the average user of pornography today is 8 to 12-year-old kids. So many parents will say, well, therefore, therefore, we reject this. This is, we're not going to use any technology, no internet, uh, no, none. And then some of people, they, maybe they receive it blindly and they just use technology. One family might say, okay, well, we love technology, but they receive it. They give the phone to the kids, no monitoring, don't even care, just receive it blindly and then just hand it out. And then others can use technology to redeem it by joining God's rescue mission. And we see some of the greatest advancements in missions in the American church and around the world utilized by technology. I mean, we live in a very technological world. So your view on culture is really important. Or think about movies. You know families that reject movies. Some families receive it blindly. They don't even watch what they're watching. They don't even know what they're watching. Or think about holidays. Let me give you this example, Halloween. For some Christians, a very controversial topic. And that's the day where, you know, people dress up as goblins and witches and warlocks. And yes, all that stuff is evil. A witch is evil. A warlock is evil. A devil is evil, right? So then you're like, how do we as Christians take this holiday where you have these people dressing up like this and then are supposed to just receive it blindly? And I would say, no, you don't receive it blindly. Maybe you redeem it. Let me tell you a story. Dr. Young, he's the, now the president of Denver Seminary. He brought up the discussion in, in, in contextualization of the gospel message in American culture, and he picked out Halloween. He said, let me tell you a story. He said, for years as a, uh, as a Christian, I felt strongly convictions that I would not participate in anything dark or demonic. 
So therefore, when Halloween came around, I'd turn off the light and I would go back to the back room and when people would ring the doorbell, I'd ignore them. He said, but then as I started reading God's word more and I started thinking about the mission opportunity I had for the families on my street, I was convicted, I flipped on the light, I put out a huge bucket of candy and I answered the door and I greeted every family that came to my door because, he said, it was the one night out of the year I'd have more than 150 families visit my front porch. See, how you view culture as, as a Christian determines everything for mission. And what I would argue is that this is no new news. Martin Luther, the, the famous reformer, let's pick on music for a moment. He's the monk, he's the guy who left the monkhood, married a nun, and they broke all their vows for the uh, church of that day. And uh, Luther felt like he needed to translate the Bible from Hebrew and Greek into the German language. And the Gutenberg Press mass-produced it. And boom, we've got the Bible in people's hands. Luther felt like the, he had to get the message of Jesus Christ out, not only through preaching a message, but through music. And when he came to music, he realized that many people would reject music in the church some people would receive it blindly, and he thought, I, what I'll do is I'll redeem it. Luther would go down to the pubs and the bars, and he would spend time. He actually really liked beer. His wife made beer. They were, that's home brewery right there, Martin Luther. And Luther would go into the bars, the pubs. He would hear music. He would take the sound, the notes, the melodies. He would take those back into his home and put Christian words, theological truths woven into the bar songs, then he would go back into those pubs, back into those bars, and he would sing. The song, A Mighty Fortress. You think that's just some old hymn that they created in some high ivory tower of the church back in the 15th, 16th century. No, these are, these are pub songs. So my question to you is, how do you respond as a Christian Reject it, receive it, redeem it. Much of this is Christian liberty. You have to use discernment. You have to pray and you ask the Holy Spirit. You look to God's word and then you make a decision. Is this, do I reject it? Do I receive it or do I redeem it? This is what the Bible teaches. Jesus said this. We learned the big point that God sends believers into culture to redeem, restore, and rescue. Jesus said this to his disciples. He says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. He's praying to the Father. He says, but that you keep them from the evil one. So he doesn't want his disciples to be out of the world, but he says, but just keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world. They're not of the worldly system, just as I'm not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Jesus continues on in John chapter 20, 21. He says, Jesus said, said to them again, peace be with you as the Father has sent me, so even so I am sending you. The posture of an American Christian is to enter into culture and try to redeem it. Some things will need to be utterly rejected. Some things can be received. But much of what we have to do here on this earth is redemptive work. And that's the heart of a missionary. 
You are a modern-day missionary in your context, in your influence. God sent you to your family, your job, your friends, your neighborhood, that gym that you go to, the coffee shop, to be an influence for good, for the glory of God. And you say, well, okay, how am I going to do this? The Apostle Peter answers that. 1 Peter 2.11, how to live for Christ in a post-Christian world. Peter writes, he calls him beloved. He's telling them first, like, look, I know it's hard. Beloved is beloved by God. You need to know that you are loved by God and that God wants to use you. He says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. First thing you need to do to live for Christ in a post-Christian world is remember your identity. You are a foreigner. You're, he calls them so, sojourners and exiles. These aren't two different people groups. He's talking to believers and he's saying, you don't fit in. You have an eternal citizenship. You're not supposed to fit in. In overcoming, you gotta realize that this is a test. Will you trust God in the hardship, in the challenge, in the opposition? Will you trust God and ask for his help in the trial, in the temptation, in the trouble that you're gonna face? Years ago, I went on a mission trip, spent three months over in Madrid, Spain, and I was getting weary at the end of my trip. I was longing for the United States of America. I found out I just, I, I can't speak Spanish good enough. I didn't fit in. I was fatigued. I was homesick. And I just told my wife, I said, sweetie, if there's any way, let's just make it over to the beautiful Golden Arches and go have lunch. And we went into McDonald's and I'll never forget, I walked in and there's this big long line and I'm sitting there and I'm really hungry and the food is, was very expensive over there. It's like eight, nine euros to just get a meal. So I get my meal and I look at it and I'm like, this is so small. And I look at my wife, I'm like, look how small this is. Like my, my drink is this big and my hamburger is like this big and my french fries are this big. And so I take it back and I say, um, pardon me. Pardon me, whatever. Uh, I, I, and I say, and, and people are frustrated. Like, what's he doing, this, this American dude? And I say, problemo, problemo. And they say, you know, you know what? You know? And I say, estoy muy pequeño. Yo quiero grande. And somebody walks over to me and goes, like, are, are you from the U.S.? And I say, yes. And then he says, hang on, let me translate. And so he translates back and forth to this guy. And the guy's like, oh, oh. Yeah, I'm thinking, you know, I, I, was, you know, I don't know what they're going to say about me. So then I, I sit there and I just say, yo necesito grande. I'm thinking, I'm, I'm trying to say supersize. You know, they don't know supersize over there. Here's my point. I didn't fit in. I was homesick. I got sick over there and I got scared because I didn't know how the hospital would take care of me. I didn't get sick from eating the, super, the, the food, don't worry. Um, but I got sick over there. The food didn't feel right. It was the wrong price, the wrong size. The cars were too small. Everything started just getting to me. And then I got back to Miami. I kid you not, landed in Miami and I kissed the ground and I'm like, I'm home. I love Miami. Here's my point. You don't fit in. You're supposed to be a foreigner. If you don't live like a foreigner, like when you step foot outside your door, you need to think about it like, I'm an immigrant. 
I'm a foreigner. I'm supposed to feel some opposition. I'm supposed to feel this trial of being uncomfortable. There will be significant opposition. So what do you do? Number one, you remember your identity. You're a sojourner. Apostle Peter is pulling back to the work of Abraham and calling upon him as a sojourner in the Old Testament who was called by God to a place he didn't even fully know, called out of his comfort zone and into the faith zone to live out God's plan and purpose. You're called by God to live in the world, but you have to realize your identity is radically different. Your identity will help you overcome every opposition that you face. Not only that, the Apostle Peter tells us that we're, we need to abstain from sin. He calls it passions of the flesh. Now, absolutely, passions of the flesh would include drunkenness or sexual immorality. And we need to abstain from those. We need to, we need to present our sexuality in a biblical manner. We need to present and utilize alcohol in a biblical manner, and we're not to do those things and abstain from drunkenness, abstain from sexual immorality. But I would say, I think the sins that the apostle Peter, the passions of the flesh, is referring to in context is chapter two, verse one. He says, he names out these social sins. Chapter two, verse one, he says, so put away all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. We need to abstain from those things. These are the social sins. What is malice? Malice is intentional uh, hurting somebody else. If you're going to live different in this world, you need to put away those kind of sinful things. You don't retaliate out of anger. You respond out of love. When it comes to deceit, deceit is misrepresenting the truth. Maybe you're a, you misrepresent people. That's called gossip or slander. The scripture says, if you're going to live different, you not only need to remember your identity, you need to put away these things. You need to abstain from sins like this, deceit. Don't be deceptive in your speech, in your work, in your family, in your relationships. Be open, be honest, live honorable. He goes on and says, or hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is pretending you're somebody that you're really not, living a double standard life. Many of you maybe have a mask and the Lord's saying, take that mask off. Reveal your sin, confess your sin. The Bible says if we confess our sin to one another, we can uh, receive prayer and we can receive healing and help. Maybe for some of us abstaining from sin, as the Apostle Peter points out, is envy. Envy is this incredible feeling of discontentment. You look at somebody else's qualities, somebody else's success, somebody else's family, somebody else's vacations, and there's this incredible feeling of discontentment. Abstain from that. And then continuing on, he talks about slander. Slander is, is a complete defamation. It's a complete lie. If you're guilty of that, the scripture tells us, put that stuff away, abstain from sin. How are we to live, in a, live for Christ in a post-Christian world? Remember our identity, abstain from our sin. And number three, I would argue, abide in Jesus and God's word. Most people... And religions teach on the abstinence part. But we have to remember the power is in the relationship with Jesus Christ. In a relationship with Jesus Christ, as we remain in a relationship with Jesus Christ and in God's word, we grow. The psalmist says that 
Blessed is a man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night and everything that he does prospers. We're to like sink our roots into God's word. Jesus talked about it like this in John chapter 15. He said this, abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. And I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit for you. For apart from me, you can do nothing. What he means by that, he's using an analogy and he's probably was in a vineyard and teaching. He used a lot of outdoor um, teaching illustrations. Probably grabbed a cluster of grapes and said, basically pulled them off the vine and said, you're like these little branches. And if the branches aren't connected to the vine, it can't grow. Here's the reality. If you don't abide in a relationship with Jesus Christ, you will not grow. You will not be able to overcome the trials, the temptations, the struggles that you're going to face. Abiding in God's word, abiding in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Let me ask you a question. If you use Sunday morning as the only input for God's word into your life, you are going to grow to be a spiritual grown man or woman, but still be a baby. You need to feed yourself in God's word. You need to remain in that relationship. You have the Holy Spirit. You call upon him, Lord, help me. The apostle Paul wrote to the church in Galatia and said, in essence, is that by, when we walk and live by the spirit of God, that the fruit grows into our lives. And when the hardships press us down, instead of anger or resentment coming out, love, peace, joy are pressed out of our lives. So the passage that Peter continues on to encourage and exhort believers in, in the uh, Roman Empire, dispersed throughout the empire. He says this about their behavior. Verse 12, he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. When he talks about the Gentiles, he's ta- it's another synonym for unbelievers, And what the apostle Peter is doing is he's encouraging them to live an honorable life and that even when people speak bad against Christians, that they're to demonstrate their beliefs through their behavior. People, your actions oftentimes speak louder than what? Words. What what Peter is saying is saying, you need to live an honorable life that even unbelievers that face, that give you opposition they say, man, that's honorable. And they would be facing discrimination. They would be uh, facing being ostracized from the communities. They didn't, the Christians in, in this time, they're increasingly being rejected. They're not getting invited to the parties. They're not going to the gladiator games. They're, they're not doing that. They don't fit in. And he continues on. He says that the result will be is they're, the, the godly behavior reflects beliefs and ultimately missionary work. Look what he says. They may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This kind of language echoes what Jesus taught on the Sermon on the Mount. Peter would have been there. He would have listened to Jesus' teaching when Jesus said, let your light shine before men so they may see your good deeds and what glorify your Father in heaven. Your actions oftentimes speak louder than words. This day of visitation is the, the day that they, they receive salvation. And some, some uh, scholars would say that it means the day of judgment. 
but it seems to me it would be most in line in, when, in 2 9, when he, in 11 he says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into the mar- marvelous light. Once you were a people, but now you're, you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. He goes on to say, be subject for the Lord's sake for every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise for those who do good, for this is the will of God. Let me stop right there. It's interesting to me that Peter's writing about this and saying this because guess who's in power? Nero. This indicates why systematic persecution or Christianity has not been yet outlawed when Peter's writing to believers, but again, it's serving as a prophetic warning to the believers. And what he's saying is you'd be subject to the governing authorities as long as the government does not violate God's truth. Then therefore you submit to it. You work within it. This is actually an argument pro-government, that God uses government. Look what the apostle Peter says. He says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or to governors sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. It's a means of God's common grace. God uses police officers. God uses um, uh, politicians. Yes, God uses politicians. God uses government leaders to organize what's what's called God's common grace so that all people can have a functioning, healthy lifestyle. Peter says, you submit to this. And then he continues on, for this is the will of God. By doing so, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Here's the impact of our actions. Number one is that when you live for Christ in our non-Christian world, you'll silence the critics, or at least you should. That's what Peter says. He says that by doing so, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. When you choose to live for Jesus Christ, you, may, you will be criticized. If you're not being criticized now, you will be increasingly in the future. I think it's Taylor Swift that says, haters are going to hate, hate, hate. And shake it off. Get on with it. You're, you're not supposed to fit in. You remember your identity. I'm a foreigner. Realize that you're abstaining from sin Worldly values, worldly systems, not doing that. I'm going to abide in a relationship with Jesus Christ. I'm not of this world, but I am in this world. And I have a great deal to redeem. Silence the critics. There will always be criticism. The larger influence that you have in your business, your organization, your friendship circles, your family, the more criticism you'll have. For every step of influence that you take, you become an increasingly larger magnet for pain. And one of the mega themes that is in the rest of 1 Peter is we're going to learn about is suffering. And I'll spend a great deal of time talking about suffering. And as a Christian, the longer you go, the more in depth you go in your relationship with God, the more kingdom territory you advance, the greater the pain the greater the challenge that you'll face. And you're thinking, I don't want any of that. But I will say on the flip side, the greater the joy, the greater the reward, the greater the renewal, the courage, the love, the drive. Silence the critics. 
with your actions. Secondly is direct people to God. Your behavior reflects what you believe. Your behavior reflects what you believe. Jesus said it like this, let your light shine. Where does the light shine the best? In the dark. You're to be a light in the darkness. You're not to go off the grid under the radar and hide in Christianity. You teach your kids to go into the culture and redeem the culture. You teach yourself, Lord, I'm going to move into this culture and redeem as much as I can in the name of Jesus. Jesus said, let your light shine before men and they may see your good deeds and give glory to your Father in heaven. Peter said the very same thing. He says, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. When you're living your life as a Christian in your profession, as a counselor, as a chaplain, as a finance person, as an IT person, as a nurse in the health profession, in the accounting profession, any profession at all, your beliefs are reflected in your behavior. We're to live in a way that's honorable in our culture, in our context. And when people come to you and they notice how you're managing through life, they come to you for help. You become a magnet for help. You become a magnet for people wanting encouragement. They need support. They need counsel. Here's my encouragement to you. As you grow in your faith, when they come to you and they ask for help, give them help. Help them. But then introduce them to the helper. When they come to you and they ask for encouragement, Give them encouragement. Pray for them. Encourage them. But then connect them to the encourager. When people come to you and they ask for support, give them support. Support them, but direct them back to God. Don't direct them to yourself and the good works that you're doing. Direct them back to God. When they come to you and they want counsel, give them counsel. But then turn around and then connect them to the counselor. So you have a platform, and the world will be one to Jesus Christ when Christians enter into the culture and say, we shall redeem this in the name of Jesus. And there will be increasing opposition in the days ahead. There will be increasing challenges, and you have an obligation in your actions. You will, by nature, direct people to God, but you must take an affirmative action to be able to share the love of Jesus Christ with people. Not only share the love of Jesus Christ with people, but also show them the love of Jesus Christ. That looks like reflecting the love of God. You may be the only Christian that people see. What do you people believe? Uh, what's, what are Christians like? I recently, I told you uh, last week, I was in my community center. And I was talking to a friend of mine. And he said, so what is your church all about? What is that church about? I said, well, it's really about Jesus. And he goes, oh, that's, that's interesting. I'm like, why would you have a church that's not about Jesus? But it reflects the love of God. And, 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 and as a Christian, your actions begin to reflect your love for God, that you live a certain way because you find God's blessing and love in it. You reflect the love of God. Peter talks about people seeing your good deeds. And so your actions will open the door for people to ask for directions. When you live your life simply as a believer, people are going to want to come to you. 
because they think that maybe you got it figured out, at least better than them. Oftentimes as a Christian, you are a better version of what your friends are that are unbelievers. And you show them that. This is how to be an accountant that's a Christian accountant. This is how to be a nurse that's a Christian nurse that lives for Jesus Christ. I don't live by the world system. This is how to be a counselor, but one that's uh, under the authority and the supremacy of Jesus Christ. This is how to be a mom, but be a Christian mom. And then be that person in your sphere of influence. This last weekend, this last week, I spent the whole week up in the White Mountains, had an awesome time, fly fishing, had a little uh, uh, spiritual retreat and had some staff guys out and church leaders out. We spent some time up there. And after they left, I went down and I was fly fishing and I saw this one guy, he was just crushing it. He just knew how to fish. I'm rusty. I don't, I don't know how to fly fish that great, but I've been fly fishing. And I say to him, I say, do you mind if I just follow you around? He's like, that's kind of creepy, but yeah, sure. So I say, I want to learn because I'm rusty. So I sit on the bank and I ask him questions. What fly are you using? Well, how do you cast over here behind that rock and on this eddy and on this current? What indicator are you using? What line are you using? I'm asking questions. Let me tell you something. As a Christian, when you grow in your faith and you become more proficient and effective, people naturally will come to you and ask for directions. They'll constantly come to you. You have an irresistible influence as a believer. And my question to you is, will you enter into it and say, yeah, I will shine the light in the darkness for the name of Jesus. Here's my point in saying this this morning is God's called you to live on the grid and on the radar of people's lives so that we're actively sharing and showing the love of Jesus Christ to a lost world around us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you desire to use your church to be a vehicle of blessing, to share and show the love of Jesus Christ to the world around us. Lord, we thank you for Mission Grove going forth and as a result of our church and many other churches pouring resources and investing time, talent, and treasure. Thank you for the people that have gone and supporting that new church. Thank you, Lord, for these believers here. Thank you for your work here. Lord, might you expand our opportunities to share and show the love of Jesus Christ and live for Christ in a Christless culture. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. To become a supporter of North Valley Community Church, give online today at northvalleychurch.org.